Hello and welcome to Wandering Sinai. The first book I've decided to research is Tobit. It's often referenced in Catholic weddings and is used as supporting evidence for intercession of the saints. For those of you that are not familiar with the term, it's the name of the tradition which allows Catholics to pray to angels and saints asking them to pray on their behalf. Theologically, if Tobit is determined to be canon, or at the very least in agreement with canon, this would strengthen intercession of the saints. But given that intercession of the saints is primarily supported by New Testament theology over Old Testament theology, this story doesn't really matter in the long run. Nonetheless, if one could prove intercession of the saints is supported in the Old Testament, then traditional Protestants would really need to rethink their admonishment towards Catholic traditions. This is one reason I happen to be interested in Tobit. So here it is. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the book of Tobit, and as I have commentary, I'll insert my thoughts in there. This way you actually get to hear the story, and you don't have to go running back and trying to figure out where I am in the book. So let's start with chapter one. I, Tobit. Sorry, I don't really have the, the masculine voice to do this, but anyways. I, Tobit have walked all the days of my life on paths of fidelity and righteousness. I performed many charitable deeds for my kindred and my people who had been taken captive with me to Nineveh in the land of the Assyrians. Well, there's, there's one, Nineveh. Maybe we actually get to see some of the reasons why Noah had to go there. I don't know. We'll find out. When I lived as a young man in my own country, the land of Israel, the entire tribe of my ancestor, Naphtali, broke away from the house of David, my ancestor, and from Jerusalem, the city that had been singled out of all of Israel's tribes that all Israel might offer sacrifice there. It was the place where the temple, God's dwelling, had been built and consecrated for all generations to come. All my kindred, as well as the house of Naphtali, my ancestor, used to offer sacrifice on every hilltop in Galilee to the calf that Jeroboam, king of Israel, had made in the city of Dan. So, okay, this describes a time in Kings, uh, I don't know if it was one or two, but in one of the kings, where Jero Jeroboam ruled and segregated Israel so that they could participate in their own localized festivals. Due to a political disagreement, um, to explain this, Jer Jeroboam was able to become king of ten of the tribes of Israel, which included Naphtali, and they became the northern tribe. Neither Jeroboam nor any king following him kept to the true traditions God had established in the northern kingdom. There were some that made it good in the south in the southern kingdom of Judah, but we're not getting into that. This is northern. So in this speech, Tobit is painting a picture of how things were to give you an idea of how much he had to overcome to do the right thing. So moving on. But I alone used to go often to Jerusalem for the festivals, as was prescribed for all Israel by long-standing decree, bringing with me the first fruits of crops, the firstlings of the flock, the tithes of livestock, and the first shearings of sheep. I used to hasten to Jerusalem and present them to the priest, Aaron's sons, 
at the altar. To the Levites ministering in Jerusalem, I used to give the tithe of grain, wine, olive oil, pomegranates, figs, and other fruits. Six years in a row, I used to give a second tithe in money, which each year I would go to pay in Jerusalem. The third year tithe, I gave to orphans, widows, and converts who had joined the Israelites. Every third year, I would bring them this offering, and we ate it in keeping with the decree laid down in the Mosaic law concerning it, and according to the commands of Deborah, the mother of my father, Tobiel. For my father had died and left me an orphan. Okay, so real quick, Deborah, uh, I, I did look this up in case you happen to be curious. Deborah mentioned in here is not the same Deborah mentioned in Judges. It's another Deborah. Probably the original Deborah was her namesake. Anyways, between the split from Judah to Assyrian captivity was about 200 years. So I can't imagine Tobit's actually talking about having lived that long. But if you put it into perspective that he was part of the kingdom in its latter days, that makes this all the more remar remarkable that he would adhere to these things. Whether this is a true story or not, there is a message to be had here. You can live by God's rules, even amongst those which do not. Moving on. When I reached manhood, I married Anna, a woman of my ancestral family. By her, I had a son whom I named Tobiah. Now, after I had been deported to the Assyrians and came as a captive to Nineveh, all my kindred and my people used to eat the food of the Gentiles, but I refrained, refrained from eating that Gentile food because I was mindful of God with all of my heart. The Most High God granted me favor and status with Shal Shalman Shalmanzar so that I became a purchasing agent for all of his deeds. All right, so a random note here about myself. I happen to live by the food laws as closely as possible as I can. It's incredibly difficult to do in a society that uses pork for many things, especially in processed foods. Every time I go to a Mexican restaurant, I have to make sure that they're not using lard in, like, anything. So, I get it. Now, I don't know how hard it was for people of this time, though. But I do know that Daniel, who seems to be kind of removed timeline from this, experienced a similar situation where the only thing really offered was what the king was eating. But he managed to convince the cook to cut out the meat and eat a vegetarian diet. If Tobit had started out as a low-tier guy, so to speak, or, um, you know, we, we see that with uh, Joseph in Egypt, he might not have had much in the way of luxury to pick and choose the way I can today. And I wonder if he put himself in a state of starvation to maintain this lifelong fast. Really gotta know. Okay. Until Shalimazar Mansar died, I would go to Medea to buy goods for them, there, or for him there. I also deposited pouches of silver worth 10 talents in trust with my kinsman Gabriel, son of Gabri. 
who lived in rages in the land of Medea. When Shalmanzar died and his son uh, Shenachrib, can't say his name, can't say a few of these names, as you can probably tell, uh, came to rule in his seed, the roads of Medea became unsafe. So I could no longer go to Medea. In the days of Shalmanzar, I had performed many charitable deeds for my kindred, member, kindred members of my people. I would give my bread to the hungry and clothing to the naked. If I saw one of my people who had died and been thrown behind the wall of Nineveh, I used to bury him. Shanachrib returned from Judea, having fled during the days of judgment and acted against him by the king of heaven because of the blasphemies he had uttered. Whomever he killed, I buried. For in his rage, he killed many Israelites. But I used to take their bodies away by stealth and bury them. So when Shanachrib looked for them, he could not find them. Kind of curious what Shanachrib did with the bodies if he did find them. Maybe I don't want to know. But a certain Ninevite went and informed the king about me that I was burying them, and I went into hiding. When I realized that the king knew about me and that I had, been, uh, I had been hunted to be put to death, I became afraid and took flight. All of my property was confiscated. I was left with nothing. All that I had taken to the king's palace, except for my wife and Anna, my wife Anna and my son Tobiah. But 40 days did not pass before two of the king's sons assassinated him and fled the mountains, or fled to the mountains of Ararat. It's nice to see that he doesn't seem to attribute this to God pouring out wrath on Shnachrib for having gone after Tobit. I feel like we often give God too much credit in things. I'm sure that sounds blasphemous. I mean, really, but think about it. If you attribute everything to God, then you leave nothing to human free will. And that's far more damaging to one's relationship with God. I'm trying to forge a relationship. That's why I'm wandering Sinai. But if all my relationship is is him controlling everything, then I'm really in a relationship with him. So it helps me to see that he's not really putting this down as, oh, well, hey, God went after him and uh, sent his two sons to assassinate him. It's also blasphemous. I'm pretty sure that fratricide is completely against God's whole thing, God's spiel. Very confident that that's like one of the larger taboos when it comes to murder, but okay. So, a son, his son, Esther Hardin, Haddon, succeeded him as king. He put Ahigar, my kinsman, Aniel's son, in charge of all the credit accounts of his kingdom, and he took control over the entire administration. Then Ahigar interceded on my behalf, and I returned to Nineveh. Ahigar had been a chief cupbearer, keeper of the signet ring, treasury accountant, and credit accountant under Shnachrib, king of the Assyrians, and Eshahadan appointed him as second to himself. He was, in fact, my nephew of my, uh, my nephew of my father's house and of my own family. 
So just another aspect here of how relationships grow and work. With free will, we have the opportunity to both impress and disappoint, right? So knowing one's reaction, their genuine reaction to such turn and how it turns out, tells the truth of their role in the relationship and whether or not, well, they're genuine. Chapter 2. Thus, under King Esarhaddon, I returned to my home, and my wife Anna and my son Tobiah were restored to me. Then, on our festival of Pentecost, the holy feast of weeks, a fine dinner was prepared for me, and I reclined to eat. The table was set for me, and the dishes placed before me were many. So I said to my son Tobiah, Son, Go out and bring in whatever poor person you find among our kindred, exiled here in Nineveh, who may be a sincere worshiper of God, to share this meal with me. Indeed, son, I shall wait for you to come back. What I love about the spirit illustrated here is that Tobit is taking this an extra step further and manifesting a truth of the first Passover. That is, if there weren't enough people in a singular household to warrant a family feast around the lamb, they were to invite their neighbors until they had enough people to make the feast, thus making this more of a love thy neighbor kind of thing and only share what you have. So in one way you can see it reflected in the family setting. Well, we only have enough for us. We don't have enough to really bring anybody else in and given it's the Passover is a speedy thing that's supposed to happen. That was the whole thing. We can't really bring anybody else into the, into the celebration. But if you didn't have enough and you had too much, you were supposed to love your neighbors enough to invite them in. And I love this, that Tobit is showing this spirit in here. Tobiah went out to look for some poor person among our kindred, but he came back and cried, Father, I said, he said to him, or I said to him, sorry, okay, Father, he cried. I said to him, here I am, son. He answered, Father, one of our people has been murdered. He has been thrown out into the marketplace, and there he lies strangled. I sprang to my feet, leaving the dinner untouched, carried the dead man from the square and put him in one of the rooms until sundown so that I might bury him. I returned and washed and in sorrow ate my food. I remembered the oracle pronounced by the prophet Amos against Bethel. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into dirges. Then I wept. At sunset I went out dug a grave, and buried him. My neighbors mocked me, saying, Does he have no fear? Once before he was hunted to be executed for this sort of deed, and he ran away. Yet here he is again, burying the dead. So this is kind of a curiosity for me. Um, Christ once told a disciple, Let the dead bury their dead. But I wonder how he would have looked at Tobit's situation those who were mourning were paralyzed in fear to even attempt to bury their loved ones, while a stranger t treated them as family by giving them the proper burial they deserved. You know, and kind of in some respect, I think this behavior uh, may be an example of Christ's parable of the Good Samaritan. But isn't there also some manner of personal death associated with Tobit's actions? 
That is, every time he buries another person, is there not some level of despair he experiences because he sees them as family? I wonder if that's uh, also to say that he's carrying too much of Israel's plight on his shoulders. After all, as he reflects on what happened, he's reminded of a prophecy which is filled with depressing tones. That same night, I washed and went into my courtyard where I lay down to sleep beside the wall. Because of the heat, I left my face uncovered. I did not know that sparrows were perched on the wall above me. Their warm droplings settled in my eyes, causing white scales on them. I went to the doctors for a cure, but the more they applied ointments, the more my vision was obscured by the white scales, until I was totally blind. For four years, I was unable to see and all my kindred were distressed at my condition. Agihar, however, took care of me for two years until he left for Elam. At that time, my wife Anna worked for hire at weaving cloth, doing the kind of work women do. When she delivered the material to her employers, they would pay her a wage. On the seventh day of the month of Distrius, she finished the woven cloth and delivered it to her employers. They paid her the full salary and also gave her a young goat for a meal. On entering my house, the goat began to bleat. So I called to my wife and said, where did this goat come from? It was not stolen, was it? Give it back to its owners. We have no right to eat anything stolen. But she said to me, it was given to me as a bonus over and above my wages. Yet I would not believe her and told her to give it back to the owners. I flushed with anger at her over this. So she retorted, Where are all your charitable deeds now? Where are all your righteous acts? Look, all that has happened to you is well known. So following my previous remarks, perhaps the lesson that's here for, is that uh, for all the work he's done, for others, he needs to accept the aid of others to truly understand the value of charity. As it seems to be written at, uh, as it seems to be written after the fact, Tobit does acknowledge that he was kind of arrogant. So lesson learned. Um, it also kind of seems like he had seen so little charity that he was getting to a point he believed himself the only one capable of it, and that's that's a lot of pride. Chapter 3. Then I, being grieved, did weep, and in my sorrow prayed, saying, O Lord, thou art just, and all thy works and all thy ways are mercy and truth, and thou judges truly and justly forever. Remember me and look on me. Punish me not for my sins and ignorances and the sins of my fathers who have sinned before thee. For they obeyed not your commandments, wherefore you have delivered us for a spoil, and unto captivity and unto death, and for a proverb of reproach to all nations among whom we are dispersed. And now thy judgments are many and true. Deal with me according to my sins and my father's, because we have not kept your commandments, neither have we walked in the truth before you. Now, therefore, deal with me as 
it seems best unto you, and command my spirit to be taken from me, that I may be dissolved and become earth. For it is profitable for me to die rather than to live, because I had heard false reproaches and have much sorrow. Command, therefore, that I may now be delivered out of this distress and go into the everlasting place. Turn not thy face away from me. So I'm going to level with you. I don't really like Blind Tobit because it kind of reminds me of myself in many ways. Not that I ever asked God to take away my life from me, but, you know, I hate feeling defeated. But man, isn't this something that many of us have felt? There's something to be taken from this prayer other than his defeat, though. He recognizes that the captivity is, is in here because of his fathers. But more than that, he's saying that he believes he hasn't learned from his ancestors and thus committed many of the same sins. Since I skipped, uh, so, you know, it's here, right? Okay, so it came to pass... The same day that in Ectabatan, uh, a city of Medea Sarah, the daughter of Regul was also reproached by her father's maids because that she had been married to seven husbands, whom Asmodeus, the evil spirit, had killed before they had laid with her. Dost thou not know, said they, that thou hast strangled thine husbands? Thou hast had already seven husbands, neither wast thou named after any of them. Wherefore that dost thou beat us for them? If they be dead, go thy ways after them. Let us never see of thee either son or daughter. When she heard these things, she was sorrowful, very sorrowful, so that she thought to have strangled herself. And she said, I'm the only daughter of my father, and if I do this, it shall be a reproach unto him, and I shall bring his old age with sorrow unto his grave. So, okay, Asmodeus is considered a prince of the demons in some Judeo-Islamic traditions. The theory is that Asmodeus is actually a deva named, uh, uh, it's this weird A and E put together, so I'm just going to go with Ishma? Ishma. From the Zoroastrian tradition dating back to somewhere between the 1500s and 1200s BC. The first time we see mention of Asmodeus in Judeo history, however, is in Tobit. Later, a couple of centuries after Christ, Ashmedei, his Hebrew name, is connected with the king Solomon in the Babylonian Talmud. So it's here in Tobit, Tobit that we can see a real manifestation of what the demonic are capable of. Uh, I mean, okay, so I guess you could say, we could say we see their capabilities in Job, but all right, yeah. So we, we can see another aspect of what they're capable of in Tobit. Then she prayed toward the window and said, Blessed art thou, O Lord, my God, and thine holy and glorious name is blessed and honorable forever. Let all thy works praise thee forever. And now, O Lord, I set mine eyes and my face toward thee and say, Take me out of the earth that I may hear no more the reproach. 
Thou knowest, Lord, that I am pure from all sin with man, and that I never polluted my name, nor the name of my father, in the land of my captivity. I am the only daughter of my father, neither hath he any child to be his heir, neither any near kinsman, nor any son of his alive, to whom I may keep myself for a wife. My seven husbands are already dead, and why should I live? But if it please not thee that I should die, command some regard to be had of me, and pity taken on me, that I hear no more reproach. Sarah's grief is understandable. Something I find commendable between the two prayers presented here is a, God, I'll leave the decision to you. Sarah's prayer, however, is less about personal pity, though. She's seeking to also honor her father through it all. Notice how she puts some focus on the thought that her father only has her, and therefore it's only through her that her family might be redeemed. So the prayers of both of them were heard before the majesty of the great God, and Raphael was sent to heal them both. That is, to scale away the whiteness of Tobit's eyes, and to give Sarah, the daughter of Raguel, for a wife to Tobah, the son of Tobit and to bind Asmodeus, the evil spirit, because she belonged to Toba by right of inheritance. The self-same time came Tobit home and entered into his house, and Sarah, the daughter of Raguel, came down from her upper chamber. So God dispatches his angel, uh, a named angel at that, to help both of them. It's something to note that we don't see a named angel of God until um, Daniel in the 600 B.C. time frame. And those names are Gabriel and Michael. So Raphael would either be the first one, if you believe that this story was written before Daniel, or the third one in um, Catholic canon. It is only worth noting, though, because there are those which would point out to you that an angel will never reveal their name, and therefore the story should be thrown out with, thrown out completely. And the reason why they're not, they don't reveal their names, is out of respect for God, uh, that they may not become an object of worship. So while we should never worship an angel, and it would be flawed for us to write off someone's experience solely based upon whether or not an angel's name was revealed to a believer, we really need to look at all the elements of the encounter before we make a decision. So says the same situation with Raphael in the story. So this is probably a good place to stop for now. A lesson that Sinai is teaching me, scripture cannot be read all in one go. There are things to be considered. And honestly, I can only hope that God gives me the answers I seek and that you who are wandering with me have an opportunity to think on them also. Thank you for joining me at Nights of Awakening and Awaken the Night Within.